We're in a series called Financial Freedom. And I think it's so appropriate that on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, when we pause and celebrate this great man and all the wonderful causes that he championed, not only uh, racial equality, but social justice of numerous kinds, I think it's really appropriate that we're talking about this. Because one thing I believe with all my heart, and that is financial bondage is one of the worst bondages of all. We want to see people living free. We want to see people living free of financial oppression. We want to see people flourishing financially, and that's really what this series is all about. So today, we're talking about living with a margin. What in the world is that? Not many Americans do it, but I'll tell you, if you talk to some who are, and there's a whole bunch in our church who live this way, I've had some great conversations after each of the two services last night and then this morning. They will tell you it's one of the greatest blessings in their lives. Simply put, living at the margin is living at least one step below your means so that there's always something left over. And to not live that way, Scripture says, is rather foolish. But you know, most Americans just aren't into that. I read a ton of articles online this week, more than I can even name, and looked at lots of statistics and surveys, and it seems, according to what I discovered, that the average national savings rate kind of bottomed out back in 2006. One article said 2005, so I guess there's a little discrepancy there, but it's been kind of growing since then. But still today even though it's better than it was back then, the Amer average American household, this is the median, by not the average, the median is $11,700 in savings. Most studies indicate that most Americans are living pretty much paycheck to paycheck. And yet scripture says, God wants us to build some margin in there so there's something left over. But here's the kicker. Even when you finally choose to live that way, even when you get some margin in your life, there is a built-in temptation that comes with that, and we're gonna look at that a little bit later. So our story begins in Luke chapter 12, and as we kind of open up there to what's going on, Jesus is teaching a big crowd of people, and the teaching's pretty heavy, really. He says things like, hey, be careful what you do because even what's done in the dark is gonna be revealed in the daylight. And then he says things like, look, don't be afraid of people. Don't be concerned about what people can do to you. And then he makes this astounding statement in Luke 12, verse five. He said, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I think you'll agree. These are substantive topics here, important stuff you would expect the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to be talking about. But then suddenly, in the midst of the teaching, the topic changes dramatically to money. <laughs> now, I know a lot of folks that if they've got a choice between a 
sermon on hell or a sermon on money, they'll choose hell every time, okay? That's how much they dislike a sermon on money. But this guy in the crowd boldly changes the subject, and he essentially asks Jesus a question. It's kind of in the form of a directive. Verse 13, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So apparently there's some arguments going on in this family over money. Now, I know that never happens in your family or mine, right? There's never any squabbles or conversations or arguments about money, but, but it's happening here. And this guy wants to be sure he gets his share of the inheritance. You know that old saying, where there's a will, there's a relative, all right? And so he's probably the younger of two brothers. And in Levitical law, here's what it said, the older brother gets two-thirds of the inheritance, the younger only one-third. So he's going, Jesus, intervene. Tell my brother to split it right down the middle. I want you to see here what I'm calling the profile of a financial fool. As we enter into this interaction between Jesus and this man, it gets really interesting. I want you to notice two things about the interaction. One is shocking to me, and the second one I'll point out is rather predictable. Here's the shocking one, okay? I'm shocked that this guy wants Jesus to even get involved in anything about financial guidance. Because most people I know want to keep Jesus far away from any discussion about their money. In fact, maybe some of you here today or listening online, you have thought this or you've said it out loud, why does the church have to talk about money? That's not spiritual. And if you've ever thought or said that, here's my concern. You've been duped into compartmentalizing your life. And that's a problem. The Knights Templar did that. History tells us that they famously, as they were baptized by the church, they would hold their sword up out of the water, as if to say, Jesus, I'm all yours except for this. And how I conduct myself with this and on the battlefield and in life related to this, that's not a part of the deal. And I think a lot of Christians do that today. We're baptized, but we're holding something up out of the water. Maybe it's your sex life or how you navigate intimate relationships, or maybe it's your political views or how you're gonna treat your career. There's all kinds of things that we wanna hold back, but I'll tell you, hands down, I believe the number one thing that people wanna hold out of the water is their wallet. Jesus, I'm all in, except for this. Not the purse, not the pocketbook, not the wallet. And so we want to hold that back. I'm shocked, honestly, that this guy is asking for Jesus to give input. The second thing about this interaction I want you to notice, and this is pretty predictable, really, is I don't think he's asking for honest input. 
You know what I think? I think this guy wants Jesus to just rubber stamp what he's already thinking. And we do the same, don't we? Those of you who are parents, many of us here today are blessed to be parents. Hey, question. Did your kids ever practice selective hearing when you were parenting? You know what I'm talking about, right? You go, you look at your spouse and you go, I thought we made that clear. We did. But they're just practicing selective hearing. We all did that as kids. Our kids did it. Their kids will do it. We, we want to kind of pretend that we didn't hear certain things. Let me ask you a question. If, Jesus, if you found out that Jesus said something or that the Bible teaches something that's contrary to how you're currently conducting your life, would you change your way of living? That's a real important question. And let me tell you why. Because authentic, sincere, sold out followers of Jesus, they understand he's their authority. The word of God is their authority. And so whatever they discover that the Bible teaches, it's really clear, they're gonna line their lives up behind that and do it. People who don't do that are just playing at religion. They're hoping that maybe they can get some fire insurance, but they have no intention of really letting Jesus transform them into what he wants them to be. And I think this guy's kind of like that. He's wanting Jesus to sign off on his idea. And Jesus says something. I love this. In verse 14, he says, man, who pointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? I love that. You know what? I think I'm going to put that on my automatic email response right there. That. I'm going to put that line right there. You'd be amazed how many people want me to get involved in family or relational squabbles. But Jesus goes on. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And again, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Jesus telling a parable about money is not unusual. 16 out of his 38 parables had to do with possessions, finances, how we manage money. Last weekend one of the leaders of our church, a man I've grown to really, really respect a lot. He and his wife and family are very involved here at Grace. He said to me last weekend, Pastor Rex, I love this series we're in. I wish we talked more about finances, he said. We really need it. And I walked away from that conversation thinking, now there's a man who gets it. He knows that if we were more like Jesus, really, as a church, we'd be talking more about possessions rather than less because it's such a huge part of our lives. Jesus told them this parable, verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. Now let's push pause there for a moment. Don't read ahead, don't cheat. 
Those of you who've been in church and heard this story, you know, you know how this story turns out, but don't go there yet. You know that Jesus is gonna end up using this guy as a bad example. But let's suppose we didn't know that. This is all we know. Wow, this guy's a rock star. I mean, he's impressive. He's into cash flow analysis. He can make projections for the future. This man is an entrepreneurial genius, and he's flourishing financially. And in the spirit of today's message, hey, he's doing what the Bible consistently says to do. The Bible says a wise person saves for the future. That's a common teaching in the Bible. And this guy is a rock star. He's all over that. He has got margin and lots of it. And again, I say, most Americans don't. One of those many articles I read this week, written by Emmy Martin, she reports on a survey from some time back that reveals 18% of Gen Xers, and that's a number of people in the room today and listening online, 18% of Gen Xers between the ages of 45 and 54 have less than $1,000 put away, while a full 40% admit to having nothing saved at all. So I want to talk to you now in a very practical way about what I'm calling steps for building margin. There's all kinds of practical reasons we could do it. We could tick them off right away. Emergencies, medical issues coming up, children's education, funding retirement, and on and on and on. But let's get real practical. And I just want to tell you, if you're kind of new to the Bible, some of this advice, some of these steps are going to seem counterintuitive. In fact, they're going to sound downright contradictory to a humanistic mindset. For instance, the first one is that way. Practice giving off the top. There you go. Wait, wait a minute. Stop. Wait a minute. That's the opposite of saving. How could you ever get a margin if you're giving? That's the opposite. Yeah. But here's what scripture teaches, that God, as the owner, has entrusted these things to us as managers, and he gives us this amount, whatever it is, and he's looking at everything we do. He's looking at how we manage that, and his desire, mind you, not to make everyone rich, but his desire consistently, and I'm kind of startled by how much scripture says this, God wants to bless us. That's an overwhelming theme in Scripture, overwhelming. In fact, his desire to bless us is greater, you get the feeling, than our ability to contain that. And so, one of the best things we can learn to do when we're looking for financial freedom and to build some margin is to build this practice in right up front, giving off the top. Proverbs 3. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. So when we do this, God sees everything we do, and he honors it. Now, I'll admit, there's a mystery here that I can't fully explain. In fact, I, I think the writer of Proverbs kind of gets at the mystery of this principle when he says in chapter 11, 
One man gives freely, yet gains even more. You scratch your head and go, how can that? Wait, you give freely, yet you gain even more? Mystery. Another withholds unduly, tightwad, stingy, but comes to poverty. You can't explain that. That's so counterintuitive. And yet, Debbie and I have experienced this through our whole married life. We can't fully explain it, but we've experienced the profundity of what God does when we give off the top. And by the way, I believe I could fill this platform, and it's rather large, with people just from Grace Fellowship who would tell you the same thing. I could stack them up here, standing beside Debbie and myself, row upon row, shoulder to shoulder, stacked up here like cordwood so that the whole platform would be completely filled with people who would say to you, I can't fully explain it, but somehow when I honor God off the top, God does more with the nine-tenths when we honor him than we could do with the ten-tenths without honoring God. And by the way, if you're on this journey of faith, maybe you're kind of new at it, I, I wanna bring to your attention something that I believe is really important in scripture. Throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, 10 is kind of a number in scripture for testing. Let me explain. Pharaoh had how many plagues? 10, when you read the story in Exodus. And each of these was a test of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. What was he gonna do with the test? And then you've got 10 commandments. 10 commandments, they're really 10 tests of our obedience. And then you have the awesome wilderness wandering story. They're tested 10 different times. Or you have Jacob working for Laban or Daniel being tested in the book of Daniel. They're all kind of based upon 10s. And then you get to the New Testament, Revelation chapter two, verse 10, says that God's people will be tested for 10 days. Now think about this. God gives us this amount, however much it is, and he's waiting to see what we're gonna do with the test, with the 10%, and it's a test of trust. And when we say, God, here it is, I give it back to you, God sees that, he honors that, and he does more than we could ever imagine. A second step I would give you is to develop a grateful heart. You wanna live financially free, it's gonna require some attitudinal tweaking because so much of what scripture teaches us about financial freedom has to do with gratitude in our heart. Let's look at our definition once more. We're using it throughout the series, financial freedom, a profound, satisfying contentment marked by the absence of greed, that is a huge line here, absence of greed, and release from anxiety and worry about financial matters. Now, I wanna keep that up there for just a moment. I want everyone to look at that. Greed is the enemy of that. Discontentment is the enemy of that. Unthankfulness and ingratitude is the enemy of that. In fact, discontentment is an enemy of margin in general. 
When we're discontent, we keep wanting to live and use up everything we have and more. When we're content, we tend to not use it all up. We're happier with where we are. Now, most of us tend to think, look, if I'm not saving enough, it's because I'm not making enough. Pastor, I'll tell you right now, I'm not saving enough because I'm not making enough. I hear you. And I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for more. But listen to this. If we don't tweak our attitude, trust me, human experience bears this out. It's easy to illustrate and prove from human experience. If we don't tweak our attitude and move toward contentment, we're always going to tend to use up everything we have no matter, no matter how much more we get. That's just a fact. I always remember this story uh, with a smile. Some years ago, uh, in the earlier years of the church, there was a, a gentleman who came to me one day and he thought that I was being a bad witness for the church. So I was all ears and he was really concerned that I wasn't really representing God and, and really representing the church well. I was kind of giving the church a bad name. And, and he pointed to my card. Now you gotta understand that in those days, I kind of delighted in driving junker cars. In fact, I had fun with it. I would call them designer cars, and I would laugh and hoot and howl about it. I'd say, look, there's not another car on the road like this one. Look at that rust right there. Isn't that fantastic? Designer car. No other car like it, okay? And so he pointed at this car, this really junker of a car, and he said, Pastor, we were outside, he pointed to the building here, he said, Pastor, you can't pastor a church like this and drive a car like that. And I cracked up laughing. I said, wow, but it's paid for. And I said, trust me, I've got a very healthy ego, believe me about that, but here's one thing I know about me, it's not tied to my car. I just want a car that gets me from point A to point B. I have no ego whatsoever tied up in my car. And I always think back on that with joy and humor. And he became a good friend and a man I really respect. He's gone on to glory now, died a number of years ago. But today, I drive a much better car. I drive a 2013 Honda Civic. Whoa, I am living the life, man. But can I tell you, I am not one bit happier than when I was driving the bag of rust. And you know what I believe about myself? Now, you may, you may find this challenging. I believe for myself that if I were driving a brand new Rolls Royce, I would not be one bit happier than I was when I was driving the designer car. Don't miss the point. Contentment has so much to do with gratitude for what you have, whatever that is, an attitude in your soul. That's why 1 Timothy says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So let's not buy into the bigger barn illusion. You can't buy happiness over the internet, folks. It's a deep work of God in our souls. 
as he renovates us from the inside out. The third suggestion is aggressively eliminate debt. Now, we talked about that a ton last week, so I wanna be rather brief. But I wanna be clear, as we said, debt is not wrong, it's just discouraged in the Bible. So if you have particularly debilitating debt, I would urge you to aggressively eliminate that debt. One of the things I found online this week, I was curious about it, I had no idea, so this was a new discovery for me. What is the average car payment, monthly car payment in the United States? $550 is the average for a new vehicle. The average lease payment, I discovered, is $452 a month for a lease. Obviously, there are some much less, some much more. That's the average. And I found that the average monthly payment in America, all across the country, for a used car, when you buy it on credit, is $393, okay? Now, let's just spit a scenario here. Let's suppose that you're about 24, 25 years old. Many people here are that old or younger today. Let's suppose you're 25 years old, and man, you've never thought of anything else. Maybe it's what your family's already always done, and you just think, of course you're gonna have a car payment. And so... Uh, you're thinking about going and buying a, a used car and paying that payment every month, but something comes over you. What got into you? You get the crazy idea that you're just not gonna do car payments anymore. Instead of you paying the interest, you want somebody to pay you interest on your money. What a crazy idea, wow. And so you tough it out a little longer instead of going and making that purchase. And you ride the bus a little bit and you get friends to take you here and there and you just wait and wait and wait. And finally, you get a junker of a car, but you pay cash for it. You have no payments. And you make a radical decision. You're 25. You make a radical decision that you're gonna take that $393 a month that you would have been paying for that used car and you're gonna invest it, not in something wild and crazy, but in a basic middle-of-the-road blue-chip mutual fund type investment. And you say, I'm gonna do that. I'm not gonna stop doing it. I'm gonna keep putting $393 a month away in that investment. By the time you retire at the age of 65, you will have approximately $2 million just from that one practice alone. Why wouldn't everybody want to get in on that? Debt is the enemy of savings. The Good News Bible says stupid people spend money as fast as they get it. And if that's true, what would it say about people who spend it before they get it? <laughs> it wouldn't be very complimentary. So I urge you to make it your mission to become debt-free. I would tell you to sign up for Financial Peace University, but it's all booked up. A bunch of people jumped on that last week. Every spot is taken for the upcoming class. There is a waiting list. You can get on the waiting list should someone need to drop out. There are also openings, I'm glad to say, at some of our other campuses. So you can look online and join there or get on the waiting list, but it's one of the best decisions you'll ever make. Step number four, save what you can. Now listen closely to this. Save what you can and do it 
consistently. One ABC News poll that I read said that 25% of Americans, that is one out of every four Americans, believes their best chance for retirement savings, to make it in retirement, is to win the lottery. One out of every four believe the lottery is their best strategy. Scripture has a different plan. Proverbs 13, dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Save what you can and do it consistently even if it is very little at first. I wanna spin another scenario. Let's say you're 25. We're just starting it early because these kind of principles have the greatest value for those who are teenagers today or in your 20s or 30s. Let's say you're 25 and you get married and you and your spouse have a household income of $60,000 annually, okay? And let's say that you buy into this plan that I've taught you for years. It's, it's what I was taught as a young Christian, the 10-10-80 plan. That is, you give 10% back to God, you invest 10% into savings that grow, wise investment, and then you live very responsibly over the other 80. Let's say that you and your spouse, $60,000, and that's all you ever earn. Now, that's a joke, because some of you are gonna earn many times that amount in your life, trust me. But let's say that you never go beyond that. 60,000 a year, and Often through the years, you are a one-income family. That's what you get, and you decide you're gonna do the 10-10-80 plan, and for 40 years you do it. What will you have done? At the end of 40 years, when you're 65, you will have given $240,000 to kingdom causes, things that are special to God's heart. And that investment that you made is will have accumulated to right at $2.5 million at age 65. You started early, that's the key. You stayed with it. And these numbers, by the way, are not based on some the market going nuts. These are based on just average historical markers with the market, average performance. Again, I say it, who wouldn't Wanna get in on that. Now you're sitting there and you go, Pastor, sign me up. That sounds awesome. I'd love to have 2.5 million. But I'm, I need every penny I get, man. Where am I, where am I gonna begin to get that money to begin to build some cushion, build some margin in my life? Well, it would require some choices, wouldn't it? It would mean you need to maybe find some different ways to have fun, maybe not eating out quite so much or going to the club so much or going to that entertainment or that concert. You might need to cancel that subscription. You might need to not get those new clothes. There might be all kinds of things, but find some way. But let me spend one more scenario, last one. Let's say you just took your coffee money. Looking for margin, just your coffee money. It's just... Make up something, $3 a day. Now, for some of you, that's about one-fifth of your coffee money a day, but, but let's say $3 a day, and you decide, I'm just gonna find somewhere 
I don't even know how I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna find $3 a day and I'm gonna invest that. If you did that every day, you're 25, and you did that every day for 40 years, you would have over $400,000 just from that one little practice alone. Remember our story? This guy is going gangbusters. He's brilliant. His face is on the front of the business review. Everybody's talking about what a genius he is. It's unbelievable. And there's nothing wrong with that. Job was the wealthiest man of his day. David, Solomon, Abraham, all would have been multi, multi-millionaires by today's standards. But we're about to find out why Jesus used him as a bad example. 18, then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Wow. I don't, I don't know how it strikes you, but to me, this is one sobering story. Jesus said, look, you, you can pile up all, you can live with more margin than you can imagine. But if you're not rich toward God, Jesus has a word for you. Fool. So I want to end today, these final moments, with what I'll call two hot tips for financial freedom. Because I hope you do begin to build some margin. I hope you do get in on the savings thing. I don't understand why anybody wouldn't want to do that. It's just an awesome thing. But if you do, you better guard your heart. Because here was basically this man's problem. He had put his security in his savings, and his savings had become his God. I hope you understand this series. It's not about contentment being found in more, more, more. My mother... My mother has been dead a number of years, passed away some years ago. But for years of her life, she lived, I believe, financially free, according to our definition. She really had no anxiety or worries about spiritual, uh, financial matters, and she, she was very content in life. She lived on $7,200 a year, social security check. You say, Pastor, that wouldn't even begin to pay my taxes, man. I know, I know, I know. Circumstances are so different. I get it. But do you know what she did with that $7,200? Wow. She tithed off of it. She gave outrageous amounts of money to her grandkids and gifts. And she literally saved a little bit. 
and lived in financial freedom. It's not about just having a huge amount. It's about freedom. It's about contentment. And the key to my mother is she knew Jesus. And her security wasn't in her savings, little passbook savings account she had. Her security was in the Lord Jesus Christ. Final tip, plan for eternity. Jesus, isn't this guy impressive? He's got the biggest barns in the neighborhood. His house is the largest one on the block. This guy is setting records. But in spite of all of his entrepreneurial genius, Jesus called him a fool. Now, I wanna be sure you understand why he called him a fool. Because in spite of all of his business genius, it's like God's shaking his head at this guy going, with all of your genius and brilliance, you failed to prepare for the one inevitable thing in your life. Folks, what is the one inevitable fact about your life? You're gonna die. That's the one inevitable fact. And this guy had not planned for eternity. He had not sent anything on, a way, on ahead. He had not been rich toward God. And God's conclusion was, you're a fool. John Tillotson was a, a wonderful Puritan preacher centuries ago. He made a statement that to me, just in my opinion, is one of the most profound statements ever made. I wanna close with it. Tillotson said, he that provides for this life but takes no care for eternity is wise for a moment but a fool forever. Father, I believe that all of us in this room and those listening online, I think we're all sobered by this story. We don't wanna be fools. We want to be sure that we get it. So would you help us today, Lord, to not only follow these biblical principles of building margin, getting our attitude right, being grateful, becoming generous in our giving, saving what we can and keep at it, be consistent, we really want to plan for eternity. There's nothing like the prospect of death that sobers us up. Father, I ask today that your spirit would do what you alone can do, be working in our midst. Father, for those who need to do business with you right now, I pray that this would be that moment. It would be a sobering moment where they would say, Lord, you got me all. Nothing held back. Not the wallet, not the purse, not the pocketbook, nothing held back. I belong to you. Everything you've entrusted to me, I intend to steward wisely. Thank you, Lord, for your work in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen.